Richard Wilder, an alum of the year 1984, serves as General Counsel and Director of Business Development at the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, also known as CEPI. He gave the commencement address for the class of 2021 discussing the hurdles of worldwide vaccine creation distribution and how CEPI coordinated with groups like the World Health Organization to accelerate the development of the COVAX COVID-19 vaccine. Today's podcast is a selection from that presentation. We have linked the full commencement ceremony in the episode description. This is The Legal Impact, the weekly podcast presented by the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law. Now accepting applications for JD, graduate programs, and online professional certificates. Learn more and apply at law.unh.edu. Opinions discussed are solely the opinion of the faculty or host and do not constitute legal advice or necessarily represent the official views of the University of New Hampshire. One of the uh, activities that I was involved in, I would say early on in the work that I did in global health, was working with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And this was back in around the year 2000, uh, early 2000s, let's say, when they were beginning to make significant investments in uh, research and development in the field of global health and doing so uh, by making grants directly with industry. Uh, And so trying to figure out some of the fundamental uh, ways that they were interacting with the university sector, with government, with companies as well, where those investments could be made, but you could give specific definition as to what the desired outcome was going to be. And so the legal constructs around how we did that were extremely important, I would say both in a seminal sense, in terms of setting the rules of the road, but then also specifically in the agreements that we struck. So in the the seminal context, or seminal sense rather, um, we developed something called the global access policy. And I'll just read it, it's the same now as it was 20 years ago. Uh, Global access requires that the knowledge and information gained from a programmatic investment be promptly and broadly disseminated, and the funded developments be made available and accessible at an affordable price to our intended beneficiaries. And, you know, this concept is something that, um, you know, carries with it both the notion that you want to be able to publicly disclose what it is that's being created and where it came from uh, to be able to enable... um, you know, science as it progresses to take results of work that was done, you know, by one and then pass it along and develop it and, and make progress in that fashion. But also importantly, um, it carried with it the notion that it was entirely possible to set up an arrangement whereby we could bring together uh, investments from government, investment, investments from the philanthropic community, uh, from the Gates Foundation, as well as the participation of industry to agree to an approach whereby new vaccines, new drugs could be developed, where there may be some commercial benefit, commercial benefit in the form of the intellectual property that arises from that development, commercial benefit in the sense that the drugs and vaccines developed could have a commercial market in addition to benefiting um, people in low and middle income countries suffering from neglected diseases or tropical diseases. So I was proud of being able to participate in that, uh, that activity. You know, we've had experiences in dealing with these kinds of issues, I would say quite intensely over the last 20 years. Um, We had um, the uh, AIDS crisis uh, that, well, there's there's been several AIDS crises that have arisen uh, over um, the last 30 years. Um, You know, but the one that was uh, most stunning was the one that took place in sub-Saharan Africa that, you know, gave rise to uh, many multiples of millions um, that were suffering from the disease and multiple millions that were, were dying. And in that context, um, I was involved in a lot of activities around trying to resolve, again, that balance that needs to be struck between uh, those that are investing from, from government or philanthropic perspective and those that are 
uh, investing of their time and energy, and in some cases money as well, uh, that have an interest in a commercial benefit. We've also seen you know, instances over the last uh, few years with respect to the outbreak of Ebola in West Africa in 2014 to 2016. Um, there were similar problems that arose at that time in the sense of, of uh, there having been some early investment in the development of vaccines against that disease. But because of a lack of investment to take them over the finish line, they weren't readily available at the time of that outbreak, and so it actually was much worse than it needed to have been. And it was a recognition of that, that being much worse than it needed to have been that was the impetus for the creation of, of a number of institutions, uh, including CEPI. So CEPI, uh, the organization I now work for, came into existence in January of 2017, so we're quite new. But it was in response to the fact that there was a need for an organization that would be able to stand up the development of vaccines to do so very rapidly when there are new infectious diseases that are emerging. That really came into focus um, in Jan December, January of last year uh, of 2020 when there was a new virus that was emerging out of Wuhan, China, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, uh, the virus that causes the disease COVID-19. And uh, at that time, of course, it was a new virus. There was no vaccine. Uh, there was a need to rapidly begin the process of developing one. Uh, we had, as part of the work we were doing at CEPI, actually begun to develop platforms for vaccine development that would more rapidly uh, be able to develop vaccines and bring them to market, including um, some based on the mRNA technology that you've heard about that is used for the Pfizer vaccine and for the Moderna vaccine. Um, we, we had to innovate not only in terms of the approach that we took um, from a legal sense. So, you know, this was a, a virus that emerged very rapidly. There was a need for a rapid response. Um, we got the sequence of, uh, we got the sequence actually of the, uh, of the virus about um, like January 10th or so of last year. And within a couple of weeks, actually, we had our first deal for the development of a vaccine with a company called Moderna. Uh, which has now been successful in bringing their vaccine into, into existence and, and into the marketplace. So what was remarkable is, um, and, and this is, I think, in keeping uh, not just with the spirit of this school, uh, but the way that, you know, we, the way that, that I was taught when, when I went to school here and the way that has continued to be taught is to be innovative, you know, to be creative and to identify what is the problem, has been said by other speakers here today, what's the problem in front of you and what do you need to do in order to solve that problem? So in that instance, you know, we needed to be able to stand up these projects very rapidly. Uh, we couldn't go through the normal six-month, one-year process to negotiate an agreement for the development of a new vaccine. So we came up with an approach whereby we were able to actually um, stand up and sign an agreement in 48 hours to begin the development of a vaccine uh, that was coupled then with a follow-on agreement that would include some of the, the larger expectations in terms of output and outcome. Uh, we also had to innovate institutionally. Uh, so, you know, we were charged as the organization that would develop the vaccines, good enough. And, you know, we were, uh, you know, ultimately had and continue to have a portfolio of 12 vaccines that were under development um, and to bring them forward. But then the question is, well, what do you do once you've developed the vaccine in the sense of brought it through the regulatory processes and it's available to the market? There has to be someone to take it up, to distribute it, uh, to uh, provide the funding for procurement. And you know, there were other organizations that were in existence. So there was Gavi, as was mentioned. It's a vaccine alliance that is an entity that is charged and has been in existence for a number of years, is charged with providing funds 
largely for childhood vaccines to be distributed in low and middle income countries. So they could be the entity that would, um, that would be able to amass the funds necessary for the procurement of the vaccines for low and middle income countries. The World Health Organization obviously has existed you know, since 1940s. It was an organization that was capable of providing the assistance to countries to be sure that they were ready to receive the vaccines once they were developed. And UNICEF, uh, the organization would undertake to do the actual procurement, that they would procure, arrange for the shipment of the vaccines and so on, you know, to the countries then that were intended to receive them. So we had to not only do, you know, the, the legal piece of the innovation, at least locally within what CEPI was doing, but then in innovate institutionally to be able to bring those institutions together, but not establishing a new institution, but rather uh, a number of agreements that would enable these organizations to work together to do the work that it's doing to be successful. The other piece of it, just to give you a sense as to um, what those of you that want to, to be engaged in, in this, uh, this type of work, you know, which exists uh, on a global scale, it exists on a local scale as well in terms of, you know, the need for innovation and creativity when it comes to dealing with health problems. Um, one of the things that we had to do is, is recognizing that the companies that were making the vaccines would be reluctant, if not refusing, to enable those vaccines to be used in countries unless issues of potential liability, so indemnification, was addressed. And then the other piece of it was for, you know, the people that were receiving the vaccines, there would be a reluctance to receive them if there was this indemnification but no way to address, you know, injuries. So we had to stand up and work, I worked very closely with colleagues from Gavi and from the WHO in particular to stand up a mechanism on a global basis to provide for indemnification for the companies so they would be um, satisfied that their potential risks were covered in introducing a new vaccine, especially those that we're seeing now that are that are made available under emergency use authorizations, but not full registration. And then we also set up a global mechanism for the 92 countries that are the low and middle income countries to have a compensation scheme whereby if people are injured because of the vaccine, there is a mechanism separately administered outside of government control that would then provide them with compensation in the event of injury. I'm you know, immensely proud of, of that work and the accomplishments that we've made. You know, but there's a couple statistics, I think, that are important, and I'll talk about the implications of them. Um, worldwide, uh, more than 1.53 billion vaccine doses have been administered, equivalent to 20 doses for every 100 people on the planet. And to be clear, not all of that was through the COVAX mechanism. There's a clear equity gap. 55 doses per 100 people have been administered in North America, and only 1.9 doses per 100 people in Africa. And some countries have not administered a single dose as yet. So while we're still focused on you know, delivering the two billion doses that was mentioned earlier on a global basis by the end of this year, we have a long way to go. And you know, we've seen, sort of going back to what I talked about at the beginning, that there are these, these competing kind of human uh, desires or goals around money and profit and success and so forth against you know, being you know, more directed towards you know, wanting to, to, to reach out and help other populations. You know, we've seen that you know, in, in evidence here. We've seen instances where countries have, um, have shown uh, a, or have, have exhibited a great deal of what's called vaccine nationalism, where you know, vaccines are retained at home. There's difficulties in the supply chain and getting the, the constituents or ingredients for, for vaccines to be moved you know, internationally. And we're engaged with the World Trade Organization in that effort and the World Customs Organization. But the point that I was you know, making is that there's a many-layered process that goes into trying to address and to solve 
uh, these problems. And in terms of the legal issues that need to be brought to bear, they have to do with international public law as well as a significant amount of you know, local and commercial law. I want to bring this to uh, close. You know, when, when I graduated from, uh, from Franklin Pierce 37 years ago, I, you know, I've been talking about this with the dean and others, is that there wasn't any concept of, of what I'm currently involved in practicing now in terms of global public health law. You know, some of the issues that we're seeing today in terms of intellectual property issues, for example, being on the front page or being the subject of debate and discussion, you know, in presidential campaigns and so forth, you know, that was unimaginable. Or the notion, for example, that, you know, there would be a lawsuit brought by the American Civil Liberties Union in a patent case. That was uh, unimaginable. And so we are seeing, you know, an, a time when issues of morality and ethics uh, play a stronger role in the work we do. And I think in my career, you know, I think I've found that the doors and opportunities were open to me because I had a particular moral compass that was directed in a particular direction. It really pointed me in the direction of those institutions, those people, and so forth that were, that were similarly situated or similarly oriented. And you know, that was the guiding principle under which I pursued my career. And I would say in closing that the world, as, as was said earlier by uh, the, the, the president of UNH, is that the world is really eager to receive your talents. Uh, there's an enormous amount of work to be done. I mean, my organization, for example, I'm hiring more uh, attorneys, you know, to work out of our Oslo office and our London office, but we have opportunities uh, in the U.S. as well. So uh, we are hiring, other organizations are hiring, you know, which is an important, obviously an important thing to keep in mind if you're, if you're looking for work. But it's also important to recognize that, you know, this is an area that is, is not going to uh, it's not going to be satisfied, you know, with solving the immediate problems that we have in front of us. There are enormous challenges, not only in dressing and finishing up what needs to be done with respect to COVID-19, especially as it, as it evolves from being something that's likely going to be from the current pandemic to something that will be an ongoing issue that will have to be dealt with on an annual basis. There's the opportunity for um, additional infectious diseases, you know, emerging um, around the world. So I'm not saying that to frighten you. Uh, but I am saying that to say, you know, that uh, we have a lot of work to do, and I am so pleased, you know, that sort of seeing and experience the spirit of this school, um, not only in this graduation, but over the years, as being ready, willing, and able to take up that challenge and that opportunity. So I, I welcome you uh, into the world of practicing lawyers, and I invite you to come and, you know, join us not only in the work that I'm doing, but what needs to be done in order to solve these local and global problems. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Legal Impact presented by UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. To help spread word about the show, please be sure to subscribe and comment on your favorite podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify.